You are listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. From 2015 for the 17th edition of the festival, this is Elif Shafak in conversation with Brendan Barrington at Smock Alley Theatre. Enjoy. Thanks very much, Martin. Um, Elif Shafak has, uh, I think, an uncommonly um, lively, varied, and complicated um, biography and CV. Um, so I'm not going to even attempt to do justice to it um, now. Um, I'm just going to say a few things to, um, to by way of introducing her um, before she um, reads us a passage from her new novel, um, or from her most recent novel. Um, she was born in France to Turkish parents, um, and she was raised, and please, if, if, I, if I get anything wrong along the way, I'm, I'm certain uh, that some of this information may prove to be misinformation. Um, she, was, uh, she grew up um, in Ankara, but also in Madrid and Amman, um, where her mother was stationed as a, as a Turkish diplomat. Um, she's the author already of um, over a dozen books, mostly fiction, but also some nonfiction, um, and she's had her work translated into more than 40 languages. Um, and I think she's part of a very uh, select company of writers who have achieved both critical acclaim um, and genuine uh, commercial success um, uh, in, in various parts of the world. Um, a genuinely international writer um, who's reached a great number of readers while also um, it, uh, attracting the highest critical acclaim. Um, she currently lives um, mostly in London, but also um, uh, partly in Istanbul, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, um, she's going to begin, we're going to have a conversation um, at the end of which we will open up, um, uh, open up the, the room to questions from the audience. We're very interested to hear. Um, your questions. Um, before that, I'll, I'll be having a conversation with Elif. But before that, um, uh, Elif is going to read a passage from The Architect's Apprentice, mm -hmm. Elif Shafak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that uh, beautiful introduction. I'm very, very pleased to be here, very excited, and I'm also looking forward to your questions, your comments, your critical remarks. Um, so please do share them with me. I want to read very, very, a very short passage from the very beginning um, of The Architect's Apprentice. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the story, this is, um, it's a novel that takes place in 16th century Ottoman Empire, which was the zenith, which was the peak the most glorious time uh, of the Ottomans. And I tell the story of Sinan, uh, the greatest Islamic architect. Not many people in Turkey know this or talk about this, but Sinan was born a Christian. He was most probably Armenian or Greek. He remained a Christian until he was 21 years old. That was his, so his basic formation was in Christianity. And when he became the chief royal architect, he was asked or ordered by the Sultan to build bigger domes for Islam, you know, to surpass the dome of Christianity, which was the dome of Hagia Sophia. 
But in my opinion, um, as I kept researching, doing research about him, I, um, I, I, I started to believe that for Sinan, the dome was not an instrument of competition, not an instrument of hostility or war, but an all-embracing concept. Because he talks about an invisible dome above our heads and how we all have equal space under that dome as Jews, Christians, Muslims, Zoroastrians. So I wanted to capture the voice of Sinan, um, the, the, the historical um, period he, he lived in, but mostly through the eyes of forgotten minorities, uh, through the eyes of people whose stories we don't hear much about. So for me, it was very important to include um, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, cultural minorities, the apprentices, the workers, the galley slaves, and also the animals. Um, because they too were part of the story. So the voice that you will hear uh, right now is the voice of his uh, apprentice. Of all the people God created and Shaitan led astray, only a few have discovered the center of the universe where there's no good and no evil, no past and no future, no I and no thou, no war and no reason for war, just an endless sea of calm. What they found there was so beautiful that they lost their ability to speak. The angels, taking pity on them, offered two choices. If they wished to regain their voices, they would have to forget everything they had seen, although a feeling of absence would remain deep in their hearts. If they preferred to remember the beauty, however, their minds would become so befuddled that they would not be able to distinguish the truth from the mirage. So the handful who stumbled upon that secret location, unmarked on any map, returned either with a sense of longing for something they knew not what, or with multiple questions to ask. Those who yearned for completeness would be called the lovers, and those who aspired to knowledge, the learners. That is what Master Sinan used to tell the four of us, his apprentices. He would regard us closely, his head cocked to one side, as if trying to see through our souls. I knew I was being vain and vanity was unfit for a simple boy such as I, but every time my master would relate this story, I believed he intended his words for me rather than for the others. His stare would linger for a moment too long on my face, as if there was something he expected from me. I would avert my gaze, afraid of disappointing him, afraid of the thing I could not give him, though what that was I never figured out. I wonder what he saw in my eyes. Had he predicted that I would be second to none with respect to learning, but that I, in my clumsiness, would fail miserably in love? I wish I could look back and say that I have learned to love as much as I love to learn, but if I lie, there could be a cauldron boiling for me in hell tomorrow, and who can assure me tomorrow is not already on my doorstep, now that I am as old as an oak tree and still not consigned to the grave? There were six of us, the master, the apprentices, and the white elephant. We built everything together, mosques, bridges, madrasas, caravansarais, almshouses, aqueducts, it was so long ago that my mind softens even the sharpest features, melting memories into liquid pain. 
the shapes that float into my head whenever I hark back to those days could well have been drawn later on to ease the guilt of having forgotten their faces. Yet I remember the promises we made and then failed to keep every single one of them. It's strange how faces, solid and visible as they are, evaporate while words made of breath stay. They have slipped away one by one. Why it is that they perished and I survived to this feeble age, only God and God alone knows. I think about Istanbul every day. People must be walking now across the courtyards of the mosques, not knowing, not seeing. They would rather assume that the buildings around them had been there since the time of Noah. They were not. We raised them, Muslims and Christians, craftsmen and galley slaves, humans and animals, day upon day. But Istanbul is a city of easy forgettings. Things are written in water over there, except the works of my master, which are written in stone. Beneath one stone, I bury the secret. Much time has gone by, but it must still be there, waiting to be discovered. I wonder if anyone will ever find it. If they do, will they understand? This nobody knows, but at the bottom of one of the hundreds of buildings that my master built, rests hidden the center of the universe. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was a beautiful reading of the opening of, of The Architect's Apprentice. Um, and I'm also grateful uh, to Elif for um, so eloquently summarizing the, the arc and scope and, and some, of, some of the themes uh, of the novel. It's a novel that contains multitudes, and um, I, I've been trying to figure out how I might go about um, trying to describe it, and, and she's done it better than, than I possibly could have. We're going to come back to The Architect's Apprentice um, uh, later in the conversation, but um, I'd like to start um, at the beginning, I suppose, um, uh, uh, with Elif's beginnings. Um, I'm interested to know first of all, and perhaps most importantly, ab about your um, beginnings, not just as a writer, but also as a reader. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned, you had a peripatetic childhood. Um, your childhood would have exposed you, you would have operated in, in languages other than Turkish. Um, I wonder, as a reader, what sort of a reader were you as a, as a girl? Um, mm. How did reading begin for you, and then how did that Thank you. To writing. Uh, and I'm so glad we we started with reading, you know, reading because I, I think they're inseparable. You know, writers need to be readers first and foremost, and stay readers all their lives. Um, I, I was a very curious reader. I was a very hungry reader. You know, as long as it drew my attention, um, I would be interested in anything, everything. I still am. I don't like this distinction between highbrow literature, lowbrow literature. I, I don't care much about those distinctions. Some books I read because the subject appeals to me, others because of the style, sometimes because I like the author, or sometimes I'm just curious. So my reading lists have always been very eclectic. Um, and I also read as much as I can non-fiction. I love philosophy. I love reading political philosophy, religious philosophy. So all these things, uh, it's, it's always multidisciplinary. But I think the beginning was, of course, very... You know, you just like walking in the dark. You mm. don't know where you're going. I was a very lonely child. I was an only child raised by a single mother, a divorcee, 
which at the time was a bit unusual because I'm talking about mid-1970s Ankara, and we were in a very conservative Muslim neighborhood. So my mom was a working mom, and I was with my grandmother, um, who had a world of her own. Um, and I, from each woman, I learned lots of things, maybe from one oral culture, from the other written culture, and I still you know, cherish both worlds. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I was on my own for many, many long hours. And so books were my companions. Books were really my friends. Yeah. And I love that other world, you know, the, the world of Storyland. I, to me, it was much more real than the so-called real life. Yeah. And um, were, any, were any particular books or <coughs> any particular writers, obviously we're talking about a long stretch of time, but as yeah. you were getting into adolescence, into teenage sure. years um, yeah. in particular, were any particular books or authors yeah. very important for it's you? It's in interesting. I mean, <coughs> in Turkey, we grew up because we always thought we were part of Europe, even though Europe never believed in that. <laughs> so, you know, we grew up reading Balzac and Maupassant and uh, Hugo and particularly French authors, French okay. literature had a huge impact, I think, on my generation and, you know, next generations as well. Russian literature is widely read in Turkey. It's interesting, so many books that are published in Western languages are um, translated into Turkish without delay. So I'm not saying maybe they're published in hundreds of thousands, but they're available for the curious reader. Okay. They're out there. So I, have, I was able to discover uh, English literature Later on, when I discovered, started discovering Irish literature, I was, uh, I was very much impressed, both because of the subjects the Irish novelists dealt with, but also the style. Uh, to me, it was closer to poetry, it was closer to oral culture. And then um, when I moved to Spain, of course, Spanish literature was part of it. Then I started reading about Sufism. So different stages of my life, I think, have been shaped by different um, reading lists. Yeah. And um, did you, as, as a child, um, in school, as a teenager, say, did you, were you writing, were you keeping journals, were you writing stories? Yeah. Um, did you imagine that writing <coughs> was, was what you were going to do with your life? Well, or? I started learning English at the age 10, so I, I was not bilingual as a child. When I look at my children right now, I can see the difference to them. It's like, you know, it's, it's so normal. I mean, um, like duck to water, you know? They just don't think, it's not an acquired language for them, it's just part of their reality. And they're always making fun of my mispronunciation, mm -hmm. you know, my mistakes. When, you're an, when it's an acquired language, it's different. You're a latecomer, you know? You have to observe, you have to catch up. So at the time, Spanish was my second language, okay. English was my third. But English never abandoned me, you know? I've loved this language. I kept reading and reading, and, and st I started writing poetry, poems in English. In English. And then short stories, and over time it evolved into novels. Okay. Um, but I write in both languages. Both are very dear to me. Yeah. Mm. And um, your first novels were written in Turkish, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And, <coughs> and, you, and they were written and published when you were still in your 20s, so you were... Yes. Um, you were fairly precocious as a, as a novelist. Um, you were living in Turkey at that time, is that right? Yes. After, so after, um, after you finished school, yes. did you go to university in Turkey? Or yeah, well, I, have, um, I, I went to Middle East Technical University, which is, um, which is a major university in Turkey, in English speaking. 
and I've done um, international relations, then I did women's studies. We were the first students of gender and women's studies, completely new area in Turkey at the time. And then for um, PhD, it was political science, political philosophy. Then I went to Istanbul. In the meantime, I moved to Istanbul, then to Boston, Michigan, Arizona, of all places. And then um, now London and Istanbul. So it has been quite, quite nomadic in that regard. And I'm always multidisciplinary. Yeah. yeah. And so did you, did you, let's say age 22 or age 25, um, did you think, did, were you on a, a, an academic path? Um, yes and no. I mean, I always cherished, I l there's a side of the, um, you know, academic bulk of knowledge that I really, really cherish. I, I love teaching. I love, you know, that, that energy in the classroom, learning, because it's a process of learning for everyone, f you know? Um, and I love the interdisciplinary structure, but at the same time, I always knew it was the art of storytelling what was, you know, the priority for me. Okay. Um, however, I think m my, whatever background I have in academia is always in my books, you know, it penetrates, mm -hmm. it seeps into, into my stories. I think knowledge is the circle. What we learn in one area uh, affects, you know, what we do in another area. So for me, these are not compartmentalized. It's more fluid. Yes. Yeah. So there wasn't a sense <coughs> that when you wrote your first novel, published your first novel, that you mm. had made some irrevocable leap into the realm of artist. You, you still <laughs> felt you had feet in, in yeah. multiple camps and... Yes, but I think I always knew, you know, literature was my, my, was my okay. primary passion. Okay. Um, I wrote my first novel when I was 23, 24 years old, it was published. And at the time it was a little bit, you know, people were surprised because of the language I used. My People who read me in Turkish, they would know. I use lots of old words together with new words. And in Turkey, this is an interesting issue because we have Turkified our language. So when you look at an Ottoman Ottoman dictionary, it is this thick. Modern Turkish dictionary is this thick. Mm. Um, about more than 50% of the vocabulary has been taken out. In Turkish, I can say yellow, I can say red, but the shades in between, I'm, I, I have no words mm. because they used to come from Persian so, and they're gone. So I lament the loss of those nuances and I use lots of old words and new words together. So from the very beginning, that was part of, yeah. part of what you were doing. And, yeah. and is that something that you had any exemplars for in Turkish literature or was it something that you were very much on your own doing at that time? I think, interestingly, because the novel um, is the youngest genre in Turkey, poetry is very old. Yes. It goes all the way back to the Ottoman Empire and we have this amazingly rich, solid tradition of poetry. However, the novel came in, in, in some ways with a mission. It was, I'm not going to say the instrument, but it was the genre for um, westernization, yes. modernization. Early novelists, and I call them father novelists, always wrote with a mission. They wanted to teach their readers something, you know, the good from the bad, how much to westernize, where to stop. Because they thought they were above their readers, more educated, more intellectual, they kept the language simple. So in Turkish literature, we have this tradition of using a relatively simple language in novels, okay. more complicated language in poetry. And I don't like that. Yeah. I love language itself, yeah. whether you're writing poetry or novels. Okay. So, and, and so in, in using that wider lexicon, the Ottoman yeah. lexicon, um, yeah. you were doing something that wasn't being done. 
by, by yeah. many. Yeah, if I, any. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying I was the only one, but this this passion, this love for mm. language, is is not that widespread because the message is was always thought to be more important. Many people in Turkey see the novel as a kind of engineering, like you know, cerebral rational work that doesn't necessarily include emotions. Okay. Emotions are for poetry. You know, these are a bit artificial yeah. um, distinctions. This is not the way I write. I don't see myself as a puppeteer who controls characters from above. I don't see myself above my readers either. I like to be drunk when I'm writing, you know? I like, yeah. I like not knowing what I'm doing, honestly. Yeah. I don't know what that character is going to do 10 pages later. So that kind of writing is closer to my heart. Okay. So you've, you've published um, some number of novels, your, your first few novels in yeah. uh, having written them in Turkish, yes. um, and using uh, a more poetic language, uh, and in some cases, um, older words from, from the yes. Ottoman period. Um, and then something equally extraordinary happens, which is that you start writing novels in English. Um, yes. Am I right to think that that it was when you were um, at, um, it, when you, while you were working in the United States? That is correct, uh, yeah. That, that that happened. Tell me about how that That is true. When I was in Boston, so in a way I experienced that move from Istanbul to Boston as a, as a shift from Turkish language into English language. And it was incredibly irrational. <laughs> You know, um, irrational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do lots of things that are irrational, but um, definitely writing, <laughs> writing in English was like that. It was like an animal instinct. So people sometimes ask me, you know, how did you make this decision? But it wasn't a decision. It wasn't a rational decision mm. at all. It was like an animal instinct. And over time, I realized um, when you write in another language, and I'm not saying, of course, not every every writer needs to do this at all. In my journey, it made sense. But writing in English somehow helped me to take a closer look at Turkey. And I find that very interesting when you put some distance between yourself and the land where you come from, some cognitive distance, you take a step back and then you look at things. You, you're capable of seeing things maybe better. Um, so I experienced that and with English maybe came an additional freedom. Um, today, you know, I meet lots of Turkish women, middle class, upper class women who are raised in a certain way, who can never swear in Turkish, you know? Okay. It ca they can never utter anything wrong in Turkish, but when they're speaking English, they're always saying the F word yeah. liberally. And I always watch these women, it just, you know, with an additional zone, you have an additional, with an additional language, you have some additional space of existence. I find that very interesting. Yeah. I think even our um, voices change as we move from one language to another. Even our body language changes because languages shape us. So the commute between back and forth, Turkish and English, is an additional freedom for me, and I cherish that freedom. And so you've, you've moved back and forth a bit. Yes, I do. Um, si since, since that first novel in English. In, in a way, I mean, ever since then, I have written every novel in English first, and then it's being translated into Turkish. And then I take the Turkish translation and I rewrite it. Yeah. So again, it's a bit, you know, insane. Well, you must be very because busy because <laughs> um, because uh, you've published a lot of books in, in not a not a very long period of time, and yeah. it sounds like you're now having to write each of them twice. But um, yeah. uh, how was that that shift to English? By then, I assume you had um, a reasonably well-established reputation in Turkey. Yeah. Um, was it seen as strange, treacherous, 
bizarre. It was, it was seen as a betrayal. I yeah. mean, many people accused me of, and then they were saying, how can a writer abandon her language? Because to them, it's, it's, you have to abandon it. They always think in dualistic frameworks, you know, either or. If you're writing in English, that means you have to abandon Turkish. If you are one of them, that means you can't be one of us. Yeah. You know, that kind of binary oppositions. And I, I, I challenge that. I yeah. oppose that way of thinking. I think it's possible to be multicultural, to have multiple attachments. In our dreams, we dream in more than one language. The mind knows no limits. It doesn't say, wait, wait a minute, now I'm you know, dreaming in German, I can't move on to Italian. Yeah. It doesn't say that. Yeah. In my daily life, I can switch, you know, move from one language to another. I, I don't like those nationalistic boundaries, and I think many of them belong to the previous century. In this century, they're not relevant anymore, anyhow. Okay. And do you, do you think it's changed? Do you think, did you notice any difference in the way your novels were, I assume your novels were being, already were being translated into English um, when you started writing yes. in English. Yes. Um, did you notice any change in the way the novels were received in the Anglophone world um, after you started writing in English, or was there no particular...? I think um, it depends on each and every novel was different. I still have some early novels that have not been translated into English yet. Mm. Particularly my first novel, it's very difficult to translate. The language is more, more esoteric. Yeah. But if I may say this, um, if, you know, over time I realized certain things I find easier to express in Turkish, certain things easier in English. So, for instance, if I'm writing about sorrow, sadness, if there's an element of melancholy, Turkish is much easier. If it's the time, uh, you know, if I'm talking about the past, but in a more, um, you know, because we have this past tense that doesn't exist in the English language. You haven't been there, but you heard it from someone. It's like the, the, the past tense you would use for folk tales. Okay. Again, that's easier in, in Turkish. But if there's humor, irony, satire, I find it much easier in English. In English. And I think that's a cultural difference more than a linguistic difference. Yeah. And so when, you, when you're writing a novel and you come to a melancholy passage yeah. um, where suddenly you feel that Turkish is, is more your friend than, than English. Will you actually draft a passage in Turkish and I, translate I, I it? Won't. Or do you plough through in English? I won't. I, won't. I, will, I will keep ploughing through, plough through in English okay. because if you're in that zone, you, you stay you in, that stay in that zone. Yes. Okay. Okay. And to me, I mean, one of the... I, I really love the English language, particularly its vocabulary. Maybe many native speakers take these things for granted. But because of where I come from, uh, I, I do not take them for granted. So it's to me amazing to see, you know, I listen to people speak English. They say chutzpah, they say kismet, and nobody says, wait a minute, that's a Jewish word. The other one is an Arabic word. Nobody's questioning the ethnic origin of mm. words. Nobody's questioning how old those words are and when they should be taken out. So that kind of multi-layered and diverse nature of the English vocabulary is something that I really, really cherish. You mentioned, um, when you were talking about your early reading, you, you mentioned um, reading in Sufism. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, and this is, um, this is a thread through a, a lot of your writing, um, uh, a, a thread of mysticism or, or uh, characters who, for whom mysticism or the Sufi tradition is important. Um, and it's certainly a, a thread mm -hmm. in, in this novel too. Um, do, I, uh, do I take it from what you say about reading in that area that this wasn't sort of the, it wasn't a tradition you were born into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're it right. It wasn't. It was not, no. no, not at all. I grew up in a very 
um, Kemalist, secularist, modern household, even though, I mean, because, because of my mom, um, and even though my grandmother was spiritual in her own way, also very superstitious. It mm. was, to me, very interesting. In 1970s, Turkey was different, and there was a lot of political violence outside on the streets. But inside the house, it was coffee cups, evil eye beads, you know, melting lead, all these prayers, you know, drawing circles, red roses, and I observed all those details. So my mother's grandmother's wo world was incredibly magical, and I've always respected that world. However, um, she was not a Sufi or anything mm -hmm. like that. The way I discovered um, Sufism, to me, it's a puzzle, it's a mystery, because I started reading on this subject when I was a college student. And at the time, I was very leftist, very feminist, very nihilist, you name it. And I was very, very angry, and all my friends were like me. So why I started reading on this um, area, I have no idea. Okay. But books opened the gate. In my life, many, many gates were opened to me via books. And so one thing led to another. However, I, I want to tell you something. When I s talk about Islamic mysticism, it doesn't, I don't stop there. I'm also interested in Jewish mysticism. I'm also interested in Christian mysticism, in Taoism, you know, in spirituality in general. To me, this is not, a, not an identity, not mm. a label, not a box. I don't like those boxes. So it is the individual mystical journey that I'm interested in. But otherwise, I'm not a religious person at all. And these things in Turkey are constantly lumped together. Yes. You know, people confuse these things in Turkey because they think if you're interested in spirituality, then you must be very religious. Yes. Not at all. Yeah, okay. Mm. And, um, and is Sufism, uh, once you started reading about Sufism and, and becoming interested in mysticism, um, was there any sort of context in which to, uh, apart from your own reading and your own thinking, um, mm. Was there a context within Turkey in which, um, what was the Sufi tradition at that time or, or, or now um, alive and well or very marginal and, and, and? In some ways it is marginal because yeah. um, many Sufi um, tariqats, you know, paths have been abolished in early 1920s in Turkey. And so many of them disappeared. Um, lots of things have been erased. Turkey, in many ways, is a society of amnesia. Mm. You know, our connection with the past is broken. It's full of ruptures. There is no sense of continuity. For many modernists in Turkey, life is tabula rasa. You open a new page and you start on a blank page. So the, our connection with the past is really, um, how should I say, um, it, there isn't much historical awareness, there isn't much historical consciousness. Mm. Uh, and the same with Sufism. Uh, however, now it's becoming more and more popular. I think more people are becoming interested in it. Um, and then I was criticized for making it more popular. <laughs> in, in, it's in, all in your Turkey. fault. <laughs> um, but to me, it's interesting. I, I'm, I am I'm drawn to the philosophy, but not necessarily um, to everyone who calls themselves themselves a Sufi, because I think some Sufi groups can be equally patriarchal, equally, you know, hierarchical. I, I don't like hierarchies. Uh, I question patriarchy. So I'm drawn to the philosophy, but I don't want to put anyone on a pedestal. I don't want to turn anyone into a fetish or an sure. icon. But it is, it is a, a strong thread in, in your writing, and um, it, it struck me reading um, your work and thinking about 
um, thinking in advance about this conversation, um, I, I started thinking about um, fiction writers, sort of the leading fiction writers um, in the kind of what we call the West, um, mm. in the Anglophone West. Um, up until, I think, relatively recently, you could name a number of very significant writers, people like Muriel Spark, Graham Greene, sure. sure. even John Updike, um, only recently dead, um, for whom um, religion or spirituality uh, was a, a constant theme in their work, yeah. um, and who were also at, at the very height of, of um, uh, state of the art in terms of, of yeah. serious fiction. Um, today, I feel as though in, in, the, in the Anglophone West, for lack of a less horrendous uh, umbrella term, um, that I think of a writer like Marilyn Robinson is an absolute genius writing about a particular American Protestant um, tradition. Um, but in general, there seems to be a sense that, that art and religion or art and spirituality are, aren't, aren't very good friends. Um, and it sounds as though um, there, there's a little a bit of that uh, in Turkey as well. That, Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of that in Turkey, yes. Have, but have you found, at the same time, my impression is that Western readers are much more interested in reading about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism um, uh, or uh, arcane uh, mysticisms or, or whatever it might be mm. than they are about reading about what sort of Christian um, uh, spirituality. Um, do you, have you found... This is a very long way of asking you. Have you mm. found um, in your relationship with Western readers um, uh, that the, the, the people are interested in what you're saying or that it's viewed as peculiar and that the, the spiritual streak in your work is viewed mm. as strange? Um, I think it depends on the, you know, the readers. Mm. Different readers approach it differently. But you're so right. I mean, I was intrigued by what you said. There's a huge lack, in my opinion, in the literary world when it comes to talking about spirituality or mysticism. And that's mostly because of the times we're living in. We tend to think that certainty will save us. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that sameness is going to bring us safety. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all illusions. So when I look at these ongoing debates between the religious and, let's say, atheist intellectuals, to me, sometimes both sides sound equally rigid, equally confident of the ground beneath their feet, equally in search of certainty, and that doesn't appeal to me. I like maybe agnosticism, I like mysticism, because mm. there, in these two areas, you see an interesting waltz between faith and doubt. You know, we can't have faith without doubt, we can't have doubt without a trace of faith. This is the dialectics of mm. life. So there's an ambiguity there that is missed by both the religious and the sharp or rigid uh, atheists mm -hmm. equally. Um, so I, I, I like you know, a certain intellectual modesty. I like it when people say, okay, this is what I believe in now, but tomorrow I might change mm -hmm. my mind. You know? So not to finish our sentences with an exclamation mark or a full stop, but just to put a comma. Yeah. You know, it's an ongoing process. It's a search for meaning. And it's a pity that not many writers cover this today because the questions that spirituality asks about life about body, <coughs> mortality, about time. What do we do with in this world? What are we doing, you know? All these questions are also meaningful questions for writers. My task is to ask the hu understand the human being. I cannot understand the human individual without asking spiritual questions. It is such an 
inseparable parts of who we are, you know. So I think it's a big luck on our parts. In the literary world, there's in general an expectation that if you are a woman writer coming from the Muslim world, then you must tell the stories of Muslim women. They expect different kinds of stories, you know, and I think we need to question those cliches, mm -hmm. those stereotypes all the time. I, I, I think in your TED talk, you, um, you made a similar point, uh, specifically referring to unhappy stories of unhappy yes. Muslim women. Yes. Um, and that, um, I imagine that that um, predates, that that probably goes back a long way, but certainly um, since, say, 2001, with the demonization of Islam um, uh, in, in parts of the West, um, it's, that's become particularly sharp, hasn't it? That the, mm. um, those debates have become particularly sharp, and the, the debate to which you referred um, is often particularly focused on Islam. Now, you've said you're not, you're not religious, you're spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But is it, ha have you felt it to be relevant that, um, that, the, that the spiritual tradition that has perhaps most um, deeply engaged you mm -hmm. is a part of the, of the Muslim tradition? Um, is that, do you feel that it's important to, obviously this is something that's important to you and, and thus it appears in your, in your works, but insofar as your work is part of a broader conversation do you feel um do you feel it's important to insist upon that the the reality that islam is not just the things we're reading about in um on the front pages of, of the newspapers the demonization yeah. um that it's a an yeah. incredibly diverse yeah. um set yeah. of traditions yes of course maybe you know we need to make it plural uh, yeah. because when you say islam it sounds right as if there was a monolithic stagnant entity but in fact there are different islamic traditions that always were and today as well different practices different interpretations different understandings of the same book um, however, I think we can be critical of many things at the same time. So I can be critical of Islamophobia, but at the same time I'm also very critical of many things that are going in the Islamic world um, in the name of Islam, mm. you know. So particularly as a woman, there are so many things that disturb me that I find difficult to accept and I do not want to accept. Um, just to give you one example, I mean, I think it was in 2001 in Saudi Arabia, from a burning school, 14 girls were not allowed to escape because their heads were not covered, and they died. So whose understanding of religion is that? Mm -hmm. And how come human life cannot be more important than you know, any, any notion of religion? For mm -hmm. me, the human life is the most sacred thing. So if that is happening in the name of Islam, then there's a problem there. Mm -hmm. We should also be criticizing that. My... The, what I don't understand is oftentimes people say, okay, they, they want to, to criticize only one side of the picture, but I think we must be critical of all kinds of extremist ideologies, all kinds of narratives that divide humanity into categories and other nice, and they are related. You know, the Sufis, they used to say, they always used to say that we were interconnected, and we really are. Maybe after 9-11, we understand this much better. Mm. Nobody lives in a vacuum anymore. Someone else's story affects my story, you know? There are all these invisible ties. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is extremist ideologies feed each other. They breed each other. Um, I think far right in Europe increases, 
you know, anti-Western sentiments elsewhere, anti-Western sentiments in my country, increased far-right elsewhere, all these things are interconnected. We need to step out this vicious circle. Mm. Um, <coughs> a few weeks ago, I think, I think it's only a few weeks ago, earlier this spring, um, you wrote an article in The New Statesman reviewing, mm -hmm. I think, three new books about the Armenian Genocide, which happened mm -hmm. 100 years ago um, in, in uh, 1915. Um, and it's now almost 10 years since you were um, charged under Article 301 of the, mm -hmm. of the Criminal Code in Turkey um, with insulting Turkishness um, in relation to passages in your novel, The Bastard of Istanbul. Um, I imagine you've talked about this and thought about it and been haunted by it uh, more than enough, so I don't want to, um, I don't want to bring you through the whole drama. Um, but given that it is to centenary and, and given that you have written this piece, I'm very curious um, about how things have changed or not changed um, mm -hmm. for you, but also within Turkey um, in relation to this question. Um, mm -hmm. It, just for any, anyone who doesn't um, know the story, um, well, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the, um, the Bastard of Istanbul, um, one of my earlier novels. It's the story of an Armenian and a Turkish family, but mostly told through the eyes of women, generations of women, grandmothers, mothers, granddaughters. And one of the things I wanted to do was to show the similarities between these two families. I think Armenian and Turkish culture are so incredibly, so beautifully similar in so many ways. Um, and, and this is always forgotten. So I wanted to look at all the subjects, areas that have been excluded in political discussions. Like I looked at daily life, oral culture, folk tales, cuisine, lullabies, songs. But I also looked at 1915, the massacres, the atrocities that we in Turkey failed to talk about. I think memory is a responsibility in that regard. We have to remember. We have to understand grief and we have to mourn together. Um, so I wanted to write a constructive book that hopefully brought people closer. When the book was published, I was um, put on trial under Article 301. Uh, I was accused of insulting Turkishness. And it was very surreal because my lawyer had to defend uh, these fictional characters, Armenian fictional characters in mm. the court, you know, the entire experience, because their sentences had been plucked out of the book, you know, and used in court as proof that I was insulting Turkishness. So, you know, where does the, you know, literature, politics in Turkey, everything is, politics is so heavy, it's just everywhere. And you have to remind people that art needs freedom, art needs autonomy. To be honest, I think every writer, every journalist, every poet in Turkey knows that words can put you in trouble. Mm. You know, when we write a novel, when we write a poem, or even when we tweet, we carry this knowledge at the back of our minds. And as a result, there's a lot of self-censorship. And to me, it was very interesting when I look at, because we have this beautiful tradition, you know, the literary tradition in Turkey is very rich, but Turkish writers had not written about 1915. And why is that? You know, why this enormous silence? Why this lack of interest? Because writers are curious human beings by mm. definition. So that to me was a, was a big puzzle. Did you have a sense then, when you were writing The Bastard of Istanbul, that 
that there, there could be trouble uh, arising from um, what you'd written, or th was the law was very new at that stage, wasn't yes, it? Yes, the law was very new. I, 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 you know, I of course I expected some people to criticize yeah. me, but this much reaction, no, I didn't yeah. expect it at all. I mean, also in the mainstream media, there were such incredibly nasty articles, um, and you know, I, I did not expect to be put on trial at all. Yeah. That that was. Also, I mean, it was quite unnerving because there were some nationalist m mobs, groups on the streets, you know, they spitting at my pictures, um, you know, chanting things. However, I don't want to paint a very dark picture because at the same time, I had such positive feedback from readers, particularly women readers, you know, Turkish, mm. Kurdish, yeah. Armenian, Jewish. Um, and they were amazing. And I really think in Turkey, just like in many other parts of the world, the novel uh, as a genre, if it's still strong and you know um, surviving, I think we owe a lot to women readers because women not only read a book, if they like it, they share it mm. with the people around them. They become passionate advocates for that book. So I've also had an, an enormously uh, warm reception by women readers in Turkey particularly. Okay. Mm. Um, that moves us nicely on to um, to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which was um, in your book, um, Black Milk, which is sort of part memoir mm. and part um, meditation and exploration of um, women's creativity and motherhood, um, uh, which was, I believe, published in Turkish around 2007, but only Probably. but in English only a couple of years That's ago. That's right, yes. Um, uh, you write in that book about um, how for for a long time, you mm. never expected to get married. You didn't think yeah. you would have children. Yeah. Um, you were married to literature, and, and the books yes. the books were your children. Um, uh, yes. Also in that book, you write um, the following, and I was fascinated by this because um, it, it's, the, it's the very end of a chapter, and um, I, wanted, I wanted to hear more on this subject, mm. and the chapter ended, so now is my chance to ask you about it. You say... Um, Still today, there remains a rule in place. Male writers are thought of as writers first, and then as men. As for female writers, they are first female, and only then writers. Um, now, I'm conscious that by even asking this question, I'm possibly um, perpetuating the same sort of um, dynamic uh, that you yeah, refer yeah. to here. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm very interested in it, yeah. and um, I'm interested too in, in the fact that um, a few years have passed since you wrote those words. Um, firstly, could you elaborate on how, in your experience, mm. um, how has that, that dynamic you refer mm. to, yeah. um, how has it manifested itself? How have you felt it? Yeah, I mean, Turkey is a very interesting country. It's, as I said, full of conflicts and different layers. Um, at the same time, I think it's a very patriarchal, very male-dominated, sexist and homophobic land. And the literary world is no different, but it looks different. Because at first glance, it's very modern, you know, very well-educated, very liberal. But when you scratch the surface, exactly the same sexism, exactly the same homophobia, exactly the same patriarchy is there but hidden. Mm. So when you are a woman writer, you have to deal with a different kind of uh, approach. I mean, you're constantly belittled. Um, I just two summers ago, I, I was reading this review, and the reviewer 
started by saying, you know, he was reviewing my book, saying very bad things about it, but he started by saying, let's see what our daughter, Kızımız, has written this time. And Kızımız in Turkish means our little daughter, you know. Okay. Um, and I look at the person who writes this article, it's the same age, you know, we're the same age. Yeah. But just because he's a man, you know, he's above. Yeah. And there I am, struggling. Um, I think it's much more difficult, to be honest, for younger women. It was much more difficult for me when I was younger because these are countries, even though we have a large young population, we don't respect the youth. Mm. Only old age is respected in Turkey because wisdom is associated with old age in traditional lands. So if you happen to be young, and because it's patriarchal, then if you happen to be a woman, it's a difficult combination. Mm. And I don't think it's a coincidence that many women writers, academic journalists, just can't wait to get older. We're trying to age as fast as we can <laughs> so that we can earn respect, yeah. honestly. That's why we're constantly wearing dark colors. We're trying to look serious. <laughs> I, I'm the same way. You know, constantly defeminizing ourselves because we want to be respected with our brain. Yeah. We don't want to be seen as a body. Um, and I, I catch that in myself. I, I wrote about this in Black Milk with humor. I realized I had six different Thumbelinas, you know, ellipse residing in me. Yeah. And there was no democracy. There was a monarchy without democracy. So, and, and the part of me that I cherished was the intellectual side of me. But I, I belittled everything else. And so when I went through this depression, there was a coup d'etat inside me. Uh, the other Tambelinas toppled down the monarch. There was, there was anarchy, you know, huge chaos, and eventually some inner democracy was restored. And I wrote about this, yeah, um, yeah with humor. And, and how was that book received in Turkey? It was received very well. Okay. Interesting. People were, some people were surprised because, you see, in Turkey, like in many other places, motherhood is seen as a sacred blessing. You know, um, of course, it's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't mean that you, do, you don't have ups and downs. You know, you fall down, you, you, you just stand up, keep walking. So that emotional turbulence is something we don't talk about. Um, it is over-romanticized. And when I wrote about postpartum depression, um, really, there were no other similar books out there. And pe some people were surprised, some people... I had male readers coming and saying, you know, I read your book and I wish I knew it before. Yeah. Then I would have understood my wife, you know, what she went through. Yeah. So that to me was, was very precious, yeah. Good. But I, I had also a lot of criticism for, you know... The usual stuff. Yeah, the usual stuff, yeah. you get that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm conscious that um, time is moving on and we want to um, give the audience a chance to ask okay. some questions, but I just very quickly want to ask you about The Architect's Apprentice. Um, I had the sense in reading this novel, and it might have been a completely um, un unfounded sense, um, but you can tell me, um, that, I mean, this is a novel that's it's set entirely in the um, 16th century, maybe yeah. uh, into the early 17th century, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's no sort of present-day thread at all. No. Um, and there's no kind of postmodern um, sort of winking at, at the present um, that I noticed. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, um, I kept assuming that this, this book was, amongst other things, um, some kind of commentary on or dialogue with present-day Turkey. Mm. Um, 
Is, is that true at all? I think or that did is I just true. That is true. Maybe that's an, that was an unintended consequence, mm. you know, rather than an aim. But I think that is very true. Sinan, um, you know, was not only an amazing architect and an ar you know artisan, a craftsman, but he was also an amazing urban planner. Yeah. He cared about the soul of the city, the history of Istanbul, the spirit of the city. So there are all these letters he has written. Um, for instance, before he built a mosque or anything, he made sure he, he, he kept an eye on the width of the streets, the height of buildings. He knew that Istanbul was a city of earthquakes and fires. He was very careful. Sometimes he had to make very difficult decisions. For instance, there were some illegal dwellings around Hagia Sophia, and he raised them down. And because of this, people criticized. They said, you see, he's a Christian. He's still, because he was born mm -hmm. a Christian, he's trying to protect Hagia Sophia at the expense of getting our, uh, rid of our houses. But he wanted to protect you know, the city. Um, he didn't like this uncontrolled expansion. So to, to make it short, I think if Sinan were alive today, and if he saw Istanbul today, I really think he would weep, he would cry. And what, because would, ma what would make him weep? Because we only have this greedy expansion today. Mm. You know, no proper urban planning, no proper discussion in the civil society. Uh, many dis decisions are taken top down. Uh, without consulting architects and urban planners and, and you know, the civil society at large. Um, we don't have this. Turkey today is a badly, badly polarized society, and I find this very unhealthy. Mm. There is a lot of anger. We, we turned into a nation of angry people. You know, what we're losing is coexistence and the culture of democracy. We have the shape of democracy in terms of ballot box and everything, but democracy is not majoritarianism. Many people, especially politicians in Turkey, think that democracy is majoritarianism. If you get the majority of the votes, then you can do anything you want. Mm. Not at all. You know? It's how well the minorities are living. It's how well the, the minorities are being treated. It's about plurality and, and, of course, separation of powers and rule of law. So these are the things that we are losing today. And that's one of the huge um, sort of historical ironies of, of yeah. the Ottoman Empire, isn't it? That yeah. this um, absolutist monarchy, um, uh, very, uh, very bellicose and warlike during the period you describe anyway, yeah. um, and, and the novel also describes uh, horrendous cruelties and um, people killing members of their own family and of their own, yeah. uh, the, uh, own advisors um, uh, in a most ruthless way. At the same time, um, this novel paints an extraordinary picture of uh, multiplicity, diversity, yes. um, and and a, a peculiar sort of um, a peculiar sort of openness, whereby um, Sinan, working for the directly for the Sultan, um, is is acting, as you say, more in the interests of the populace yeah. than than the democratic rulers of, mm. of Turkey in 2015 are. Mm. Um, to me, it's, oh, it's really um, heartwarming to see people like Sinan and also the astronomer I mentioned in the book, Takiyettin, you know, these scientists, artisans, um, architects who, were, who loved their work, who loved their work with a passion. And I think for them, work was 
like prayer. It was mm. there. It was like a spiritual connection with the with the universe. And there's a part of me that understands that and respects that. Um, and I think if you go to the Middle East today, in Turkey, it's the same. You will see a very visible culture of male idleness. You know, men sitting in tea houses, coffee houses, always men. Sometimes mm. watching fountains, watching the waves, watching the passers-by, but literally doing nothing. Um, whereas these people <laughs> were working so yeah. hard. I Everyone's mean, Sinan yeah. left behind more than 350 monuments, mm. you know, because he loved what he was doing. Yeah. To, to him, it was, you know, that kind of connection. So looking at people like him uh, really is inspiring to me. And one other puzzle is, of course, they lived in very closed authoritarian regimes, and yet they were capable of being creative. How did they manage that? You know, how can creativity be... Um, I don't know, sustains in lands that do not encourage creativity. So that's a question that mm. is important to me. Yeah, and I think the novel asks that question throughout without, yeah. um, I suppose it would be presumptuous to, to give any neat answer to it, but it, yeah. it, certainly, um, yeah. it certainly asks that question in, in a very stimulating way. Can I just ask you to join me in thanking her um, Thank for so everything Thank today? International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news and to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com.